What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Ben Brooks, the founder and CEO of Pilot, a career management company designed to facilitate positive results for both business leaders and employees with the ultimate goal of making work more satisfying and fulfilling. In this episode, Ben discusses his professional history, ranging from great leadership and responsibility roles through top-tier companies like Lockheed, Enterprise, and Oliver Wyman, just to name a few. After years of high-profile consulting work, Ben transitioned from management to human resources and began to delve into his passion for working with people. Along the way, developing a fascination with things like psychology, influences, and human motivation. He then decided to focus his professional work exclusively in human resources and derived several important lessons about human engagement and performance. He eventually founded Pilot, a project that has truly and efficiently married his extensive HR and career coaching experience. Ben is currently focused on providing a powerful coaching technique that helps thousands of employees empower their own jobs and careers. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Brooks. Welcome to another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, and joining me today is Ben Brooks. Ben, how are you? I'm awesome. I'm so glad you've taken time out to join us, and uh, you and I, we've been planning this for quite some time, and due to me just uh, apparently having a a really bad case of OLD, for those of you uh, who don't know what that is, I'm just getting old. I ended up uh, blowing my knee out and had to reschedule with Ben uh, a couple of times, so Ben, really appreciate your flexibility, and uh, we're finally getting this one on the book, so thanks and welcome. Thank you. Good things come to those who wait, I guess, right? (laughs) I'm going to go with that. That's good. That's good. So I want to start, uh, and I actually want to sort of uh, take a trip down memory lane. And uh, when I was a kid growing up, uh, I I can recall like it was yesterday, I was so excited as a kid to go to Toys R Us any chance I get. And you grew up uh, not as much in love with Toys R Us uh, and some of the research that I did. Your favorite store as a kid was the office store, like an Office Depot or an Office Max. I'm, I'm super curious, uh, how early in your life do you remember sort of um, not wanting to, I guess, maybe play with toys and instead sort of begin to live into this business life that you've built for yourself? I think, you know, a lot of you know, kids want to like play house or something like that. And I, I didn't mind doing that, you know, or like, you know, to get a new refrigerator delivered or something like that, the big box to turn into a fort and all of that. Um, but I remember we, we have evidence, at least my family, that at about seven, I was invoicing my sister for borrowing my toys. And I had a, 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 tri- a triplicate invoice book, one of those, you know, uh, carbon copy sort of things. And I had, you know, and then, and it was, a, you know, very like ransom, like hand, handwriting, you know, um, it's if you write with my entire fist where my thumb's on the top of the pencil. Of course. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I, you know, and then the address was, you know, the remittance was, you know, my house. And then the payment terms, um, I said, pay me now. And so, you know, so I think that, you know, from a young, from a young perspective, I, I would love to go to the, the store, my, my friend Jeff and I, when we were, I don't know, 10 or 11, we'd fax each other and we had the speaker phones where you could write the speed dial in on the little cards, little, there's like 30 buttons where you could pre-program numbers in. And we were really into this idea of being business people. And so, yeah, something about it just always called me. And, you know, and, and I still as a kid thought about being, I wanted to be a game show host at one point or a journalist or a, a lawyer, but, you know, but something about me always kind of knew that I'd be a business person. Well, so I have to ask, how did your sister feel about you uh, invoicing her and did she pay you on time? Uh, my sister, um, I think, you know, had a, an aggressive uh, response. You know, we've always been pretty competitive. So, I, you know, I think it was amazing we salvaged one of the invoices because most of them I think she shredded uh, or she would <laughs> or she would burn or she would like hide with the toy that she wouldn't give back from me or something. So, um, yeah, so uh, she, she, she certainly, um, although incredibly accomplished and bright, um, didn't uh, wasn't the business person. 
So your career has had, I think, a couple of really interesting twists and turns or crossroads of sorts. And, uh, you know, not to fast forward through the high school years and the college years, but I want to get into, you know, I think what, what will likely be the meaty part of our conversation today. And, you know, it, it, it seems to be almost a running joke that, you know, so many people, uh, their first job out of college is with a great organization that has a great management training program. And, and your story is is just like that, actually. I mean, you started, uh, I think it was with the Enterprise and the management training program as an intern, but then very quickly found your way into, you know, one of the largest organizations at Lockheed. Tell us a little bit about the early part of your career and, uh, you know, sort of going from uh, that management training program and Enterprise into Lockheed and then into uh, into Marsh. Yeah, you know, I was fortunate because at the time, both Enterprise and Lockheed were rated by Business Week as one of the 10 best companies to start your career. And so I got to work at both. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, I think part of it is that both of them invested a great deal of money and time into training and development early on and a lot of very rigorous structure. So as a young person, it was fantastic to be shaped, you know, beyond all the great academics. I, you know, had a great education and things, but, you know, beyond all of that and internships to, to really be shaped in, in, you know, in jobs um, in a way that was, you know, incredibly kind of uh, challenging and uplifting and things. And, you know, the, the you know, enterprise, um, you know, I, I read recently hires more college graduates than any other company. And, you know, they had, were big on our campus. And in fact, the CEO actually went to our university. And so he had a kind of a soft spot for our our graduates. And so I was um, fortunate to work with them. And then um, through through my university, Lockheed has, I think, 10 or 12,000 employees in the greater Denver area where I was. And, um, you know, I interviewed for a program there. Never really thought I would work there. I thought I was going to work in, you know, IT consulting, like at an Accenture. I had interviewed at Stryker uh, Instruments and Medical Device. Um, and I thought I'd be doing something like that or maybe for an airline, but uh, wound up, you know, or DHL or FedEx, one of those kind of companies, but I wound up at at Lockheed, but again, fantastic, you know, I, you know, experience and, um, you know, a bit like the military, you know, they give young people a great deal of responsibility in terms of dollars and impact and those sort of things. And, you know, it's really fantastic. But after a period of time, I realized that uh, Lockheed, you know, was structured a bit like the government. Some people joke it's like the fifth branch of the military. And um, in, in while it's a company that writes more code than Microsoft and, you know, does these incredible things like, well, you know, the space shuttle and do the census and all those things. Um, I wanted to be in more of a meritocracy, and I worked with a mentor and uh, through a lot of different work, uh, figured out I should be in management consulting, and um, it's a very interesting story about how I got there, but I wound up in New York City for Marshall McLennan Companies at, at Mercer Management Consulting, which is now Oliver Wyman, and uh, made the leap right into consulting, which was um, a big shift from kind of being internal on a big development program for Lockheed. Well, yeah, and if uh, if my memory serves, uh, you majored in uh, leadership studies and in marketing, and so to go into management consulting, you know, was that challenging for you? Having you know the time you spent at both Enterprise and Lockheed to then go into uh, a role where you're going into all these different businesses and helping them figure out their challenges. It was uh, certainly challenging in that, you know, um, consulting firms, you know, I hit the ground running and I was kind of what, you know, they call an off-cycle hire. So someone that's not hired during one of the traditional kind of on-campus undergrad or graduate recruitment cycles. And so my second day on the job, I was in Memphis at FedEx in an aircraft hangar, you know. Um, I was, you know, I moved to New York on Sunday night, Monday, my first day of orientation and computer and stuff and didn't really do much training. It was just the paperwork. And then, you know, Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. flight to Memphis and I was on site at a client that morning. So it was, you know, baptism by fire. But, you know, part of the reason that Oliver Wyman had hired me was my experience at Lockheed in particular. I'd gone through Lean Six Sigma black belt training um, and I knew about manufacturing and about aviation. And so that was appealing to them. But there was, a, you know, an incredible amount that I had to learn at um, Oliver Wyman about, you know, the general consulting toolkit and, and, you know, how to be a professional top tier management consultant, which is a lot of those skills I had not yet learned at Lockheed. So it felt like, you know, each job I had was this incredible learning curve. And so, you know, I was always kind of exhausted or, you know, uh, you know, would get home at night and, and be in tears once a month or something, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, I worked consecutively kind of back to back to back in really development rich environments. And so doing that at the front end of my career, you know, I, I, you know, leapfrogged a lot of my peers because I just had such intense 
career experiences. And part of it, you know, management consulting, we'd work 80 plus hours a week and travel over, all over the world. And, you know, it wasn't, it sounds sexy, it wasn't the least bit, but, um, but frankly, you know, if, if you work twice as much as, as, as your peers, you're, you know, even if you learn at the same rate, you're going to learn twice as much. You, uh, you came to a crossroads, I think, at, at one point in your career where you were faced with staying in the management consulting ranks or you were given an opportunity to move into the human resources discipline, the people discipline. T- tell us about that experience. And I- I'd really love to hear you know, what you think now that you- you've obviously taken that turn uh, and it's brought you to where you're at today. Tell us about that crossroads and what you learned. Well, a little bit like being an entrepreneur is something that found me. I didn't really find it. And, um, you know, HR, I'd always kind of, you know, thought of as, quote unquote, the bad guys or gals um, and and never been something I was overly interested in. Um, Although human behavior and psychology and influence and motivation is like something I'm fascinated by. Um, what I thought of as kind of traditional nuts and bolts HR I wasn't that interested in. But during the recession, you know, our firm wanted to smartly avoid having to lay a bunch of people off because discretionary spending from companies is slashed and, uh, you know, in order to save the jobs of those companies. And so consulting is one of those things. And so they asked all of us to take some time off. And I had proposed, um, based on my diversity employee resource group participation, to work for our parent company uh, in HR for a few months um, around diversity specifically. And our chief human resources officer, a guy named Orlando Ashford, he's now the president of Holland America Cruise Lines, a fantastic guy, kind of said, hey, can I work for you for three, three months, you know, in, in diversity? And uh, he said, let's talk tomorrow. And I went to his office and he said, um, I got a different idea for you. And he said, I want you to help me run talent management. And I'd like you to stay for more like nine or 10 months. And so I kind of very, you know, gleefully nodded my head up and down, yes. And then I left and went to my computer to Google what is talent management, um, because you know, I, I it's one of those things. I just, I, I you know, I, I knew HR generally or kind of personnel and things like that, but I just didn't understand the distinctions and the centers of expertise and all those sort of things. And so from there, you know, I got a chance to kind of test drive, um, you know, the the kind of the upside in in HR and the talent side, and had a you know a lot of success and did everything from kind of restructuring and cost takeout to engagement and culture work, leadership models. You know, we did a bunch of strategy work and OD things and analytics. And I mean, I, you know, I felt like I did five years worth of work in a, in a year working for Orlando. And then at the end of that, I was supposed to go back to consulting and the consulting firm wanted me back and it sold a bunch of work. And um, I was offered at our, at our sister company, Marsh, which is part of Marsh and McLennan. Uh, it's a, the largest insurance broker in the world. They, you know, the head of HR there said, why don't you come work for me? And I said, well, what's the job? And mind you, this conversation is like in the back of a black car coming back from Long Island. And, you know, and, and she said, well, why don't you propose it to me? And that was, you know, I was really kind of at this crossroads to say like, okay, was HR just this thing I dabbled in? Like, you know, did I do study abroad in HR kind of, or do I, uh, do I, do I kind of solidly say, this is what I'd like to do. And um, I took a, a position with her and was a vice president. It was kind of off to the races from there. Something I'm, you know, I think was a very, very, very savvy decision on my part. Yeah. How'd you arrive at that decision? Did you make a, like a traditional pros and cons list of what, what's the next role for me and what makes the most sense? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of tough because, you know, at least for me, and I think probably for a lot of people, it's not like um, career paths or options inside and outside of companies are structured like a game show, you know, door number one, door number two, you know, um, they're, they're kind of like these mystery things and the things that um, are available to us are often much greater than the things that are in front of us. And so I had to kind of not only compare, you know, consulting versus staying at the parent company, which is also an option, you know, and doing something and maybe social media or, or going to work for Marsh, but then, you know, kind of everything else I could possibly do uh, in New York City, I kind of had to kind of weigh. And the thing for me is I, I thought, you know, again, you know, where can I learn the most, which is kind of a theme in my, my career, um, kind of optimizing and maximizing for exposure and for learning. Um, you know, and ultimately, where was I going to have a great relationship uh, with, with my manager? Because I just saw more and more that, you know, that my experience at work, um, the biggest kind of X factor, you know, plus or minus was my manager and manager relationship. And, you know, and so I, I knew Lori, who I was going to go work for at Marsh. Uh, I got to know her pretty well. And we had a lot of kind of chemistry in a, in a work sense. And so I thought, you know, I can learn a lot. And I'm going to be uh, going to get to have a great relationship. And then on the HR side, what I had, you know, Orlando had coached me is he said, there's actually a massive shortage of good HR people. There's a lot of HR people, but not necessarily a lot of good HR people. 
and plenty of people that were from, you know, the, the operations and the compliance and the risk management and the cost efficiency side. But in terms of the people that were like, you know, the CMOs for people, you know, the kinds that could really help align and motivate and engage people to help like get things done and make money and, you know, beat the competition, that there was a massive kind of shortage of those people. Um, and they needed people, you know, outside thinking people that, you know, came from outside the field. And so for me, I saw it as, a big opportunity where here was this, you know, it wasn't like managing people as a thing is going to go away. And so, you know, I had this big opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, get, get in this pool where there was, you know, a massive demand and a big, um, you know, big supply gap. You know, it's interesting. You brought up uh, the CMO for people. And if my memory serves, you actually had dual reporting responsibility when you were with Marsh, at least part of your time there, where you reported both to, the CHRO and the CMO, and I'm assuming the chief human resources officer and the chief marketing officer. And I've argued for a long, long time that the recruiting function, which is the business that I'm in, is far more aligned to a marketing function than it is a a traditional human resources function. I'm curious, given your experience uh, or my, my, uh, my, my perception of your experience sort of straddling both of those worlds, at least from a reporting relationship. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think 100%, you know, recruiting, if you kind of step back from, you know, the label, if you look at the work content, you know, you've got, you know, you know, quotas and you've got prospects and leads and you got a funnel and you have conversion. So much like sales and business development and marketing in general, uh, recruiting mechanically works very similar. In fact, you know, you're seeing leading organizations, you know, buy software like customer relationship management software for recruiting, for pipelines and for talent circles and pools and all these things. So a lot of marketing technologies are now moving into the field of recruiting. So of course, marketing mindsets and marketing talent on the people side, you know, can and should move in. So I think on the recruiting side, it completely makes sense because the content of the work and then from kind of the mindset, I think with HR in general is, you know, engagement, you know, and performance and retention and strategy alignment and execution, all those things, you know, a lot of that is, you know, you're competing, especially in a knowledge worker kind of white collar environment against a lot of other forces, not just for the talent, but for their attention. You know, it doesn't matter what websites you block, you know, they've got, you know, 4G phones that can stream anything or get on any app or you can watch sports all day or shop or read gossip columns or whatever they're trying to do. Um, and so you really have to have people genuinely excited about the work they're doing. And I think that marketing, you know, as a discipline can teach HR people a lot about rather than make things compulsory and forced and these sort of things uh, to make them compelling and engaging. And so like a big principle when we rolled out things in HR is I really put my marketing hat on and I looked at his employees. I kind of scratched that out and said customer. And we would do things like as if people wanted to or how do we like make it easy, you know, um, when we did things like single sign on for different applications, it was because we had done a bunch of testing and town halls and everyone said, gosh, you know, the, the password on getting onto this network is a big barrier. I have 28 other passwords. And so you know, we spent, I don't know, it cost like a half million to do single sign on globally. But, but, you know, with a marketing mindset, we branded that this whole thing and created excitement around it or whatever. And it was like this thing, like it was a perk, like we we're giving them something rather than plugging this hole in IT, we were really responding to the kind of customer need. And so I think, you know, you know, I think it actually, you know, in addition to recruiting, marketing makes a, a whole lot of sense across HR because it's, you know, it's, a, it's how you roll out programs um, that can often make them, you know, the perceived value of them uh, much greater. Now, I want to go back just for a moment to a comment you made about the game show, about that careers don't necessarily work like, uh, you know, behind door number one, behind door number two. There's 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 a, a huge mystery, right? And every turn we make has intended and unintended consequences. And I want to sort of combine a couple topics here. I had mentioned this crossroads that uh, that you came to about, do I stay in management consulting? Do I go into HR? Do I do this? Do I do that? I'm curious, do you think that as, as just, you know, normal human beings that when we're faced with these if and or if or decisions or this and that, that we put so much pressure on ourselves that the decision we're making in that moment is somehow sort of like the life and death decision that if we get it wrong, we're doomed for failure. And if we get it right, we're doomed for success. Do you think is that just human nature? Or maybe it's just me. 
No, I, I certainly think people certainly have a undue burden kind of on the decision. And in, in decision-making in general, you always want to kind of ask, like, what's the reversibility and what's the severity of the decision, right? Um, you know, because, you know, if, if, if you're the president of the United States and you're going to drop a nuke, um, that's incredibly severe and not very reversible, right? So, you know, that's the sort of thing. But, you know, if you think of a, you know, going into a certain field or whatever, you know, there, you know, you may, you know, like burning your bridges at a company, you know, may be very severe and, and not very reversible. But, you know, trying something out in a particular field, like I was working with someone recently that's in uh, journalism and they're in, in print media and they've worked at prestigious magazines and things. And they're very interested in actually going to kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a video news magazine, like a 60 minute sort of type, you know, long form, but, you know, video package. And, you know, it's kind of an A to B sort of shift. And they were very nervous. It's like, kind of this made sense. But, you know, it's not like, if they went back to print after a journey over there or attempting to go over there, uh, they'd be shunned from print because they weren't against storytelling or they weren't against, you know, you know, news in general. They were just trying in a different medium or domain. So I think that people can certainly uh, think that it's kind of once they've gone down a path, they can't either turn around or zig or zag. Um, and most of the time I find people play it, you know, a little bit too safe. Sometimes people are too opportunistic and they, they zig and they zag. And when they're making those decisions, one of the big things is I think that they don't always have criteria and, they're, and there's two problems with the decision. One, they don't have good criteria established. And two, they're kind of only assessing the things that are right in front of them. I'll have people all the time, they bring me two or three job offers and they say, which one should I take? And then I kind of think like, I say, okay, well, objectively, are any of these exciting to you? And, they, and you know, they kind of get to the answer of like, no. So they really don't like any of them. So it's not about... You know, choosing you know, you know the 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 least um or the you know the the most least unattractive person at the, at the dance to take home. You right, know, right. Um, uh, you know, it's it's you know, it's more like pulling up and saying, okay, well, like you know, if you could wave your wand, like, what would you want to do? And often it's like wildly different. And you know, some of the complaints, you know, kind of think from that evaluation interview perspective, when you look at the gaps between resumes, you know, they'll be they'll be at a place like a large you know global company, and they'll say, oh, there's too much bureaucracy, move too slow, and then they want to go work at the IRS or something, you know, and it doesn't make any sense, um, you know, why they're doing that, but it's just kind of what they know, or you know, and the recruiting complex is designed to move you to a competitor in the same industry doing the same thing for a little bit more money or a little bit bigger title, right? That's what it's most optimized around because that's the most efficient you know flow of talent. So employees really need to kind of pull back and think what are the, you know, what, what, you know, what are their options? Because they're much broader than what people will call you for or reach out to you on LinkedIn for. Um, but most people are pretty passive or lazy. Uh, and so they don't see all those opportunities. And then really optimizing around what's important, which I think what people don't give themselves permission is to really be personal about that. I think they'll optimize around money or around title or prestige of the brand or the size of the company and things without considering, you know, like a, things like the manager relationship, how much they're going to learn, you know, maybe the, the social impact of the company or the mission, um, you know, the culture and the environment um, of it, you know, and, and there's, you know, there, there's, a, you know, they, I think it's a lot of times it's around like optics and looking good for other people. Um, not necessarily satisfying themselves. And that you got to be kind of at a more bold place with yourself to kind of listen to that internal voice around what's unique for you. Because it may be that you're a parent and, or you have a situation with a, uh, a loved one that's sick or you're deeply involved in the community in a certain way or you have other passion or side projects or interests that might dramatically, um, you know, shift, you know, kind of the optimization of what a, a, a good job is for you. Um, and, and, and it'll shift over time. Yeah, why, why, why don't you think people actually, if they are in a career hunting mode, a job seeking mode, regardless of level, why don't you think people take a step back, just pause, actually create that criteria list of what are the things, the personal things that really are truly most important to me? Is it freedom? Is it flexibility? Is it title? Is it pay? Is it relationship? Is it culture? Why don't we do that? What, what's, is it just the received wisdom of this is the way the world works, so you just go with the flow? Uh, people are insane. You know, that's kind of one, one thing. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, like um, I had a mentor once, and he was in his, like, mid-60s, super, super accomplished guy. He'd worked all over the world. He's written best-selling book, you know, all these things. And I forwarded him this email once, and um, – and he, I, I said, you know, gosh, what do you think? You know, what's, what's your advice? You know, and he just wrote back, 
people are effing insane regards, you know, in his name. And, you know, and, and, and sometimes it's unexplainable. I, you know, I don't know, you know, obviously fully all the, all the things that play, but I imagine a few of them, you know, one, you know, people are, you know, it's a confronting thing to kind of look inside, right. And to, to have to confront that it's a lot easier to look at job posts online and, you know, apply and then see if you get an interview because it's all about kind of, you know, are you kind of attractive enough to dance with them? Um, and, and you have to be a little bit less responsible, right? And, and um, a little less courageous and a little less bold to even stop and have that consideration. And also, you know, it really taps into a scarcity and survival sort of part of us where we're not very thoughtful and self-expressed when we're worried about, you know, money and bills and car payments and rent and insurance and kids and, you know, caretaking. And so depending on people's financial situation, I generally find that if people in, you know, sign up people that make, you know, multiple six figures, but sometimes are paycheck to paycheck based upon how they've kind of structured their, their finances and they will do very panicky survival based things um, because of cash flow. Um, rather than kind of that step back. And so I find that sometimes people that make the smarter career decisions, um, you know, years before have done the proper kind of financial planning and been more, you know, prudent with savings and other things like that, um, that puts them in a position to, you know, buy themselves some time, literally buy time, like time and money have an interplay together with career changes, because sometimes it is smart to step back or to, or to get off the, uh, you know, the treadmill or to take some time off because you can get that perspective. I think people are very risk averse and they want to just jump from one lily pad to the other. And sometimes the answer is jump in the pond and float around for a while before you're going to find that new lily pad. Yeah, well, and I think uh, a lot of that's likely being driven by the the on-demand uh, way of life that we've certainly grown accustomed to. Heck, I look at my kids and, you know, the the, the just the abundance of technology and information at their fingertips and anything they want, they can pretty much get fairly quickly. It's just so different yep. than how you and I grew up. And yeah, I think a lot of that is probably sort of bled into the way we approach jobs and, and our overall career. And, and I agree with you, you know, the idea of if you, if you want more of something, whether that's a better relationship with your manager or more money or a different title, whatever it is, are you willing to make a trade off of something else? Because there's a, a, a real possibility you can't have everything. And so, you know, I think the point you made around buying time and beginning to put the, you know, the fundamental blocks in place so that in a year or two or three, if there's a particular goal I want to go after, I start planning for that today. Um, that said, um, you're not at Marsh anymore. You're not at Lockheed anymore. You're not at Enterprise anymore. You've, in fact, don't work for any gigantic enterprise multinational organization. You are an entrepreneur and have been, well, likely your whole life, dating back to when you're you know, voicing <laughs> your sister. But um, you started an organization, uh, what, coming up on three years ago called Pilot? Yeah, so I've been, it's kind of been an evolution. I first started, you know, being a, business and entrepreneurial coach for a variety of people. And I realized um, over a couple of years, you know, and having a very successful sold out practice with some, you know, incredibly high power and, and interesting and passionate uh, executives and entrepreneurs that there was an opportunity to bring this kind of to the masses and democratize um, executive coaching and, and career planning and de leadership development kind of for the masses in a very progressive way and kind of the, the, the generation that we live in the on demand, you know, um, we think about TV shows and, you know, Netflix is, a, you know, getting us to, accustomed to having an entire season released at once and seamless to having whatever food we want delivered or Uber to a car whenever we want. And so we're in this very kind of different environment. And I think the traditional executive coaching model, you know, I, I, I want to have a lot of impact. That's you know part of the reason I left the corporate world is although I was very successful and would have continued to probably rise um, as already a senior vice president, one level from the CEO. Um, and I worked with fantastic colleagues at a great company, you know, nonetheless, I, you know, was, 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 you know, it was the pace at which I could make change um, in my career and the company was increasingly slowing um, as I tackled bigger problems. And so being an entrepreneur was a lot more fun. And so pilot, you know, we looked at and a lot of the things we've been talking about on this call about stopping to think about what's important. How do you optimize your career and your job? How do you, you know, plan accordingly in advance, not, you know, not when you get laid off or when you have a blowout with your boss, so plan about your next career move years in advance um, and think about things beyond just your job to satiate your, you know, your career more broadly. These are all the things that I talk to my clients about all the time. And I thought, gosh, what if I could get this out to 
tens of thousands or hundreds or thousands or millions of people, you know, leveraging modern, you know, commercial technologies. And so that's why we launched Pilot. And that's what I've been up to. So before we dive into Pilot a little bit more, uh, you glazed over and it was the way I asked the question. So uh, no, no attack on you on that, but you glazed over uh, getting into executive coaching in general, just coaching in general. Were you in a position, whether it be at Lockheed or at, at Marsh, where you found yourself in situations where you were kind of the go-to guy and some of your peers and maybe uh, subordinates as well as supervisors were coming to you and asking for your advice or, or how did it, how did it start to show up and you started to recognize that this is a gift you have? Well, it's weird since my, you know, kind of early teenage years, people have been asking me for advice and oftentimes people that are five, 10, 15, 20 years older than me. And it's continued throughout my whole life, professionally and personally, I'm like a, a go-to when people are at kind of critical moments. And sometimes they're not always crisis moments. Sometimes they're critical moments like, wow, I really need to do this. Or like, should I sell my company? Or those kind of like big, you know, I have this major opportunities that, you know, should I be on this like TV show or whatever? Um, that people, you know, have been able, have been able to ask me in those sort of moments. And so I finally just decided to start charging for it. You know, <laughs> I've been doing it for so long. And so, you know, you know, and I had benefited from having some really fantastic uh, coaches in my career, some executive coaches and some mentors. And I just knew the benefit, not only of having the, the, their knowledge and experience, you know, from the content perspective, but merely, you know, pulling back and getting perspective in particular from someone outside of my organization who's independent and objective and just to spend an hour a week and say, okay, let's, let's pull up. Let's, let's get out of the, the weeds of this person, that person, this meeting, that initiative, this reorg, this reporting relationship and really pull up about, you know, who, who are you? You know, what are you up to? You know, what, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of impact, you know, are you, are you investing in high value opportunities with your time, you know, allocating your time, like your company allocates its capital, you know, with investment return sort of as, as, as the mindset. And so, that's where, you know, that, you know, it wasn't just in these, you know, sig you know, kind of signature moments, but it was on a continual basis, making sure that I, you know, had someone that I could kind of, you know, be in partnership with that, again, wasn't going to impact a promotion or be a boss one day or any of those complexities you have within the organization. I could kind of let it all hang out, including someone that would kick my butt every once in a while and say, you know what, I think you're being a jerk or you're being immature or you're being impatient or, I don't think you're giving this person the benefit of the doubt or, you sh you know, you should have picked up the phone, you know, all these things that they could give me uh, more direct feedback than typ people typically get in a, in a managerial relationship. And so, you know, once you made the decision to start charging, is that essentially what led you into, okay, how can I democratize what it is I'm doing through technology to make it more widely available so you could create the, the, yeah, the, uh, the scope of impact that you wanted to have? Yeah, it was, you know, when I looked at, you know, coaching and fundamentally kind of the value chain of it, we mapped it out in all these different steps, but it was kind of the fusion of kind of content and process together that, you know, generates insights, that produces action, that gets results. And so, you know, it was like, well, okay, well, what role does technology have to play in particular in taking the tradition and traditional coaching relationship kind of the next level? You know, you think of all these things in particular, I'm, a, I'm pretty nuts uh, about, you know, physical activity and fitness and uh, you know, and I look at these apps and things that my trainers and other people have me using for whether it's, you know, training and activity or nutrition, and they give me all sorts of useful information and nudges and things. And uh, it's almost like I have a trainer and nutritionist kind of in my pocket. And I thought, well, gosh, like, what if you had a, a career coach and an advisor, you know, with you and managing your behaviors rather than I think the one of the one of the 1000 problems with like annual performance reviews because, um, you know, that's like, I think why people hate performance management. If you Google that, I think you could, you know, it's like 5 million results or something. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it is the idea of like, you only take a look at, you know, how you're doing and what you're doing once a year in this awkwardly structured process, usually using horrible technology uh, versus having it be a continual process that uh, is looked at, you know, potentially every week um, is, is, you know, is, is much more impactful and, and insightful. So through the uh, through the pilot platform, 
um, you have offerings both for individuals as well as for organizations. And I guess that, that, that frankly, I mean, organizations are simply a collection of individuals. So everything that you have is essentially geared for uh, the individual person. Um, t- tell us a little bit about, uh, at least in particular, the job renovator program that you have. Yeah, so what's interesting is we launched originally as a kind of direct-to-consumer um, and never anti- I'm, I'm always a kind of a both-win, everybody-wins kind of guy. So it wasn't ever about like anything against employers, but we thought, well, gosh, what if we could empower consumers and go directly to them? So the, the usability, the, the design aesthetic, the voice, the content, all of it is like, you know, at a consumer grade, which is a higher grade, I think, than a traditional enterprise or HR technology. And what we found that was interesting is companies had a lot of interest in this. And they said, well, could we buy this for a group of our employees or all of our employees? And so um, we've shifted to selling, you know, now our focus is selling to companies. And, you know, we've, so our products are designed with kind of an end consumer in mind. But, you know, the person that writes the check now is increasingly and in, in, in probably over time will, will be just companies. And the job renovator, what we kind of, you know, realize is, again, that, you know, algorithm of satisfaction in distinguishing, you know, success and, you know, separate, just saying, ultimately, if people are at a bar and they're talking about work, you know, just like they're talking about a relationship, you know, it's kind of like, are you happy, right? And it often kind of gets into these real human terms. And, you know, what would make me happy versus you happy at a given company might be wildly different based upon where we're at in our career, our values, our personal situation, or other interests and needs. And so, you know, a homogenized, top-down approach where, you know, management and HR is trying to woo employees into, you know, or, or, or you know, hypnotize them into engagement or into staying at the company because so many companies are so worried about retention right now. We thought, gosh, what if the employee had a part to play in kind of having the self-awareness around what they needed and had the upside in, in the security and whatever of staying at their current company, but being much happier. It's almost like, you know, getting all the upside of a new job in terms of, you know, um, you know, new, you know, different perks and changes and things like that. But, you know, kind of the, the security and, and building on the knowledge base of an existing job. So the job renovator puts employees in the driver's seat of their own retention. They go through an assessment and an action planning process based upon research-based dimensions of job satisfaction. Again, I always stress satisfaction instead of success because people often associate with success with money or title. And to many people after a certain level, that really doesn't derive much satisfaction. But we really have people focused on what are their needs. And it's amazing how people are really not present to that. You know, you, you ask people about flexibility. I ask someone, she's a working mom, wildly successful. And she's like, I got a lot of flexibility. And I ask her how much time she takes off a year and what her work schedule looks like. And she's at work every day at 8 a.m. And she takes off about a week and a half a year. And she thought she had a lot of flexibility, you know. And, you know, you, you think about tools and resources, you know, even asking someone like, do you have all the software you need? Do you, do you, you know, do you, do you, would you like it? You know, even if you said, would a second monitor help? You know, half employees would be like, oh my God, I'd print like half as much and I'd be twice as fast, but they've never even put the ticket in. Their company probably would just give them a freaking monitor if they asked for it, but employees don't necessarily have kind of the, the self and situational awareness to realize that's something that would make a difference. And so the job renovator helps them do that and gives them a role in advocating for their own needs which again are going to be different based on the person and their aspiration and their own situation. Does the job renovator then almost force in a way for, let's just take a particular individual or a team, uh, let's, let's take an, an accounts payable team, for example. Does it force then the accounts payable manager to show up and manage in a different way because he or she now has a team of individuals that are uh, you know, in the driver's seat of their career and now have expectations that uh, may uh, be bigger than what the manager has been, uh, you know, the framework that the manager has been managing by? Well, half of, yes. And half of it is we have employees trying to manage some of their own needs. So sometimes flexibility is something employees can manage without even their manager. You know, they can kind of, you know, set boundaries and manage things in a certain way. But for things that engage their manager, you certainly are going to have a bit of a bottoms up. You know, the heat is going to be turned up, you know, uh, underneath that manager with their subordinates um, because they're going to be, you know, more vocal and, uh, and advocate and things like that. So if someone is a real kind of curmudgeon and crappy manager, like this is not the product for them. You know, um, this is, you know, 
we're, we're, you know, we need kind of the active and the engaged manager who actually is worried about people quitting and is worried about people not being engaged. Um, and so there's a great deal of companies that fit that profile. And so, for instance, we're working with a, you know, a group at a, you know, a massive luxury company um, with a global brand that's really on the move and having a bit of a comeback. And, you know, there's in New York, there's a great deal of competition for talent in luxury. And this is at a, a mid, mid-career sort of level. And so we're working with this team and, uh, and the manager is having to up their game for sure, um, not just in, in fielding the inbound from some of these employees, but we give the manager aggregated analytics about, you know, the issues that may be systemic, that rather than solve this, you know, one off for each employee, if there's an issue with all employees, let's say around like feedback or recognition or something, um, we help them with that in a way that is beyond what they probably would get from their traditional sort of engagement survey. In fact, I typically ask people if they have engagement data to send it. It's usually very kind of opaque and not very pointed. And so we try to give them much more specific sort of insights um, because we aggregate the data from, from all of their employees and say, you know, at a whole for your team, like, I mean, here's what's going on and here's what's missing for folks. And sometimes there's a lot in common and sometimes there's, it's a big, you know, shotgun blast. Yeah, it totally makes sense that there's enough organizations out there who have managers, whether they're at the senior level or mid-level, that recognize how valuable it is just to have teammates who are really bought in to their own success, let alone the success of the organization. And I can't help but wonder, you know, as, as technology just continues to explode, if part of what you've tapped into, at least with the Job Renovator program, and frankly, the Brand Crafter, which I've done some research on, and I want to get to that in a minute, is, you know, as technology gets more and more pervasive into our own lives, it's like you're almost tapping into uh, helping each individual uh, on the planet, figure out what it is that makes them human. Like, what is the essence of their individual humanity and how to bring that out? Yeah, I think that, you know, ultimately we spend so much time at work. I think someone once told me there's three things you never skimp on in terms of money, and that's your dress shoes, your office chair, and your mattress, because that's where your body is touching the ground most of the time. <laughs> and two of the, three of, the, two of the three of those things, I hope, um, are uh, ones related to when you're generally at work. And so, you know, I think that, you know, it's such, it's a, it's a place where people will spend more time at work than with a lot of friends and family sometimes, especially in the prime years of their kind of working life, that it might as well be something that um, doesn't, you know, completely deplete and drain them, um, in particular for folks that are, you know, fortunate enough to be in the strata of the economy where they were able to get education and those sort of things um, and working in, in, you know, kind of knowledge worker sort of environment, um, you know, that there's a, they have a lot of choice, more than they realize. And, you know, ultimately, you know, people, you know, you know having a good manager and having a good job can really impact someone's quality of life. You know, I, I have uh, a client that I've worked with and uh, their partner uh, had changed, uh, you know, jobs. And it's like they have a different marriage, um, even though the marriage was, was healthy and stable before. It's, you know, it's a, you know, job change can really impact, you know, the, the, the household temperature and, and the psyche of, of the person. And so we're really into people feeling like that they have a say in the matter and to also be responsible. And I think that so often um, there's the temptation when things aren't going well to kind of bail. And so it's kind of like getting on Tinder and they're kind of just swiping, you know, left and right to try to find the next best thing without kind of pausing and saying, okay, like, well, what's really going on here and what are my needs? And to your point earlier, you know, balancing, you know, you, you can have it all, just not all at once. And so there are things, you know, I, I made sacrifices. I, I never really worked for sexy companies. You know, we didn't have like wild events and things like that. And we, you know, we didn't, you know, we weren't household names always, you know, now I, in, you know, I worked for some of the smartest people, you know, I worked on some really meaningful challenges and in big environments, with a lot of responsibility, but it wasn't like swinging from the chandeliers kind of fun or, beanbags or sexiness or anything else like that. And so that was a sacrifice. And, and sometimes, you know, and, I, and I, I was envious and jealous of some of my colleagues while I was kind of at a, you know, at a frumpy, you know, insurance company, but doing very kind of important work. And so that's where, you know, again, you know, helping people structure and tap into some of that um, really can change the quality of their lives. So how much of that actually then plays into, let's, let's talk about brand crafter. You know, we are as individuals so much more than, you know, what the job titles say on our resume or, our, or on our LinkedIn profiles. How do you help people really uncover and then share with the world who they really are? 
What's interesting is increasingly some of our, our clients are buying both the brand crafter and the job renovator. And what we've kind of figured out is the brand crafter has people satisfy some of their professional needs outside of their, their job, but in their larger career. And then the job renovator has them optimize their, you know, their job within the job itself. And you kind of combine the two. It gives people a great sense of, you know, purpose and drive in their career because they've got a portfolio of interests and things professionally um, that's beyond just one job. So they're not just all in on one thing. And then the job itself, they've kind of broken down and optimized and swapped in a way that's, you know, really kind of sings and works for them. And so the brand crafter just came out of this, this idea of, you know, when I, I worked with, you know, lobbyists at one point in my career, and they said, the thing you need to know about lobbying is it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And so a lot of, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the, the brand crafter, it's about establishing your professional reputation. And it's, you know, who knows you and what do they know about you? Um, it's one thing, you know, people talk about elevator pitches. First of all, I'm like, don't, don't, you know, cost someone an elevator. That's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> don't pitch, don't, don't pitch them, you know, tell them a story and connect with them and those sort of things. Be authentic and be vulnerable, those things. But, but ultimately what's often most powerful and where a lot of my breakthroughs in my career have happened and a lot of my clients and friends, it's not what I say about me. It's what someone else says to someone else about me when I'm not there that results in an email introduction, that results in an inbound phone call, that results in a media opportunity or a sale or an invite to be a speaker or whatever it may be. So I have to be, you know, my friends just knowing that I'm quote unquote like a finance guy or that I work in technology or that I'm this or I'm that, like these vague depictions of who I am um, aren't very powerful in terms of them, you know, advocating and looking out for things that they can plug me into. And so a lot of that is understanding, you know, what is a compelling and interesting, you know, explanation of yourself that's, that's succinct, you know, if you had a on social media advertisements or startup websites, there's usually like a learn more button. And I ask people, would people hit learn more when they heard from you? Would people outside your industry be able to understand? You know, I asked people, uh, you know, we worked with a, a big global bank recently and you know, people were describing and it was like alphabet soup. I didn't understand what the hell they were saying because they're using all these internal acronyms. And I thought, gosh, if these people were at a cocktail party, what a buzzkill. You know, it might sell a lot of booze, but, um, but I don't think it would make a lot of connection. And so, you know, we're really in the brand crafter helping people to think about kind of who they are and depicting the skills that they're really good at that are transferable and that they're energized by and love doing and thinking beyond their job to satisfy them professionally. A little bit like, you know, I think a lot of healthy, you know, romantic relationships, not that the relationship has to be everything. You know, I think even my parents, like my dad loves to fly fish. My mom loves to play tennis. Now my, my dad can play tennis and my mom knows how to fly fish, but it's not really either of their things. So my mom has her friends to play tennis with and my dad has his friends to go fly fishing with. And it's not like they have to do everything as like this married couple to have it work, right? They can have some of those needs met in other different ways. And so it may be that you're not getting enough recognition internally at your company, but it may be you're doing really great work. And so having a bigger presence in your industry or your function and giving talks or doing thought leadership or, you know, writing things up or getting media or awards would be a way to get that recognition outside of your company, but in a way that kind of all in on your career satisfies you or maybe around that impact or, or, you know, leadership or innovation. It may be that it's, you know, joining that nonprofit board or being involved in the community somehow or in enrichment activities are ways and other levers to, again, take a portfolio approach to your brand and your career. And so we work with people in the brand crafter to kind of have that mindset and to think far more broadly about who they are and have a very woven, interesting story. It isn't just like I was a VP at this company and I was an AVP at that company and things like that, that really has something that's very interesting, independent of the brands and the titles of where they've worked and really tell something unique and, and compelling about themselves. You think that uh, a process like that inevitably leads people to discoveries that will take them away from you know, their current job, whether it's immediate or down the road, and that realization hits managers at some point, like, oh, my God, we're going through this brand crafter process. And uh, I know for a fact that two of my 10 teammates are, you know, I've known that they're probably not going to stay here long, but I think this is going to accelerate them leaving. Does that does that realization you think hit at some point during this process, at least in what you've seen? Um, it, it definitely, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of insights and kind of awakening that people have. Yeah. And I mean, um, I think, I don't say it as a negative. I think it's really positive, yeah. right? Because at the end of totally. the day, if they're going to leave, they're going to leave anyways. And it's better to get the right people in and the wrong, not that they're wrong people, but yeah, I guess they are wrong people, right? If they're, if they're destined to be somewhere else at some point, better sooner than later. Yeah. What I, what I find is, you know, you're, you know, your best people are always going to leave. 
right? I mean, they've got the most options, right? And they're the most known and they're going to leave over time. And so, you know, this is a way of buying more time, pushing that leave date out. You know, you can do the math on what an extra year or an extra two years of a high performer, kind of regrettable, you know, quit sort of person might be. It's a lot of money. That's massive. And it's a lot of it's a lot of performance. And so sometimes the game isn't just this binary. Are they going to stay? Or are they going to leave? Well, you're not offering lifetime employment most of the time. So, you know, kind of be in the conversation that they will leave at some point. And your goal is to keep them a bit longer and have them during that time be engaged and not coast their last year or two and then pull the cord, but really kind of sprint to the finish line. And so what we find is that you actually reduce the pressure. And, and, and what we're finding is we're, in, we're decreasing the likelihood that those people actually leave. Because what we're doing is the reasons that they might leave, we're actually able to satiate in things outside of the job, which puts less pressure for them to find a new job if their needs are met. Yep, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. But it's just a matter of time before uh, you know more and more of our leaders in business today recognize this uh, this concept. So kudos for uh, for pursuing it. For those of you out there that want to learn more about Pilot, you can go to www.pilot.coach, spelled just like it sounds, pilot.coach. And if you want to learn more about Ben, uh, you can visit Ben's website at Ben Brooks. NY for stands for New York. So BenBrooksNY.com. So Ben, one of the, uh, one of the comments that uh, you had mentioned uh, during our conversation today was helping people think about, you know, what's most important to them and the legacy that they want to leave. I, I have to assume that you've given some significant thought to what impact in the world you want to have and the type of legacy that you want to leave. And is that something you'd be willing to share with us? Absolutely. I got to go, I've gone through enough. I've locked myself in enough windowless conference rooms over the weekend for leadership seminars and, you know, find your soul sort of things that I've gotten to explore this question plenty. And really, you know, for me, it's about the fulfillment of human potential and um, not just my own, but standing of that for others. And that's what pilot is really about. And I think ultimately, you know, we have the intellect and we have the passion and the care and the knowledge and the all the things to solve a lot of some, some of, you know, society, our country, our world's great problems. And, you know, a lot of it is it's just kind of latent. Um, it's kind of hidden in many different people um, and not very activated and kind of sequestered for all these different reasons. And so, you know, my goal is to kind of, you know, bring light to people's eyes and get them engaged and turned on about life and get them in action to do cool things. And, you know, I have a high degree of confidence if we have enough people doing that, um, it will have a transformative, you know, impact on on our our way of life because I think there, you know, it's just a bit of a switchboard thing. We got to get the right people to the right problems, and I think we can make a big difference. That is a great spot to uh, to wrap this up. Uh, very uplifting, Ben. What a pleasure having you on the program again, folks. If you're interested in learning more about Ben, www.benbrooksny.com, and if you want to check out Pilot. Uh, Ben's company and look more into the job renovator or the brand crafter products. You can do that at pilot, uh, excuse me, www.pilot.coach. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Ben. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the built on purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.